This is Ozarks at Large for the final day of July 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, we hear from two private school administrators about school choice and the impact of the new voucher program in Arkansas. I am, you know, honestly nervous about taking the money. I not say I have to. I am because I know so many of my families need it. But politically, it's it's charged, right? So school choice actually already exists. Right now, it is in the form of zone housing and residential housing communities, and families are able to purchase houses in communities where really strong schools are. Plus, a career in Washington, D.C. and Arkansas. From my experience working with Fulbright, working with Robert Byrne, I could not have been treated better by either of those uh, great senators. We recall Hoyt Purvis in this week's Prior Center Profile. First, this hour's news from NPR. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art invites guests to discover Diego Rivera's America before it closes July 31st. This is the first major exhibition focused solely on the Mexican artist in over 20 years and features popular works such as Nude with Calla Lilies and The Flower Carrier, plus digital projections of his murals, including Pan American Unity and three major paintings by Frida Kahlo. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of activities and living options from apartments to village homes, plus outdoor spaces, including access to city trails. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. It is Monday, July 31st, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Later this hour, the legacy of Arkansas-born Louis Jordan. He influenced later artists like Chuck Berry and Ray Charles and Dizzy Gillespie. That's in today's second half hour. First, Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders' cornerstone piece of education legislation is the Learns Act. The law is expansive, but one element of this law includes the ability for charter, private, independent, and other non-traditional schools to access foundational funding traditionally set aside for public schools. Sixty schools across the state of Arkansas so far have applied to accept vouchers as part of the implementation of the Learns Act. Matthew tells us more. The Learns Act calls these vouchers education freedom accounts, and they will provide around $6,600 this year. But in year one, the 2023-2024 school year, not every Arkansas student qualifies to use these vouchers just yet. That list includes, among others, students with disabilities, homeless students, students whose parent is an active duty military member, and incoming kindergartners. Misty Newcomb is the superintendent of PRISM North America, a private Christian school based in Fayetteville. She says in year one, she doesn't expect they'll have many students who will be eligible to accept the vouchers. We were doing enrollment in the spring, and kids have just now been allowed to enroll in this program. And so I think in general, I would be very surprised if anyone saw a massive influx of students, unless some kindergarten academy has popped up somewhere, that, and maybe they, there has, but um, not here. So I, I don't know that we're necessarily going to see a giant increase. PRISM opened in 2012 with 10 students as an after-school program in South Fayetteville. A bunch of us came from the same church. Our kids went to different schools. We were looking for something different than what any of us found in any of those schools. And so it wasn't a single school philosophy that we didn't like. It was just a, a sense of we really wanted a, a values-based education for our kids. So an education that reflected our values. We wanted inside of that 
We wanted the students, though, to be very educated about the world they live in. Today, the school operates as a K-12 school, and Newcomb says they make it very clear to prospective students and their parents what the goals of the school are. Our curriculum is very rigorous. We are faith-based. You know, there's all these dynamics, and anyone is welcome to enroll. And certainly we have students from faith backgrounds that are not, you know, from those founding members that are not the same as those founding members, but we want them to be comfortable. Of the 60 schools that have been approved so far, 53 of them are religious private schools, 52 of those being Christian. One school, Huda Academy in Little Rock, is the only accredited Islamic school in the state of Arkansas. One of those seven secular schools is Clear Spring School, based in Eureka Springs. Clear Spring, it's actually, we're about 49 years old. Next year will be our 50th anniversary. Jessica Fitzpatrick is the head of school at Clear Spring, and she says that, like at PRISM, she doesn't anticipate a high number of students using these vouchers at her school either. Pretty much it'll just be our our incoming kindergarten students that are eligible. So that's anywhere from like 6 to 10 kids. Fitzpatrick says she first heard talk that school vouchers could become a possibility during Sarah Huckabee Sanders' campaign. And through her friend group of fellow school administrators, they started to work as a hive mind in a group chat where they asked, Okay, what have you heard and what information um, is out there and what do you guys think and what are the advantages and drawbacks? And so it was just a, a forum we had to kind of touch base with each other about what was happening. I'm a total policy nerd. Misty Newcomb again. I mean, just to be totally honest, I love public policy, and I have an actual WhatsApp group with friends who do as well. (laughs) And we were texting each other pictures and screen clips because that was all in the world I wanted to do the night it came out. Other than the expectation of a low amount of year one voucher-eligible students, especially students who would be switching from a public school to their school, And the wonky group chats, Newcomb and Fitzpatrick and their respective schools are quite different, both in their practice and in their thoughts on education policy. Fitzpatrick says ClearSpring is founded on progressive education theory. Which is student-centered and uh, recognizing that you kind of create curriculum around students rather than have predetermined content. Classes are multi-age, meaning that classrooms aren't broken into grades specifically, and in-person learning and experiences are critical. Subjects taught include Ozark's history, geology, and lots of outdoor sciences. It's a core part to our curriculum. So it's project-based learning and learning through doing that follows the experiential learning cycle. So they kind of explore and discover and question things, and then they really get into the project. They maybe make something, they do something, they go camping, they, and then, they, then there's a reflection piece, which is what did they learn, how did they grow, and making a plan for the next study. It's evident that Clear Springs' style of school is very different from a traditional school setting. And so it's kind of funny that we fall under their funding, and I, I don't know if that's intentional on their part or not, but, you know, we do things very differently, and we think that philosophically as a school that, like, we believe in, in students as people, not students as products. And so I want them all to go on and do things, but I don't know what those things are that they're going to do, but I want them to have all the skills. And that some of those skills are math and reading and academics, but the, more than that, it's the ability to take risks and make, make a plan and work with a group of people and decide what it is they want to do when they grow up.
At PRISM, students have the option of being fully in-person, fully digital, or a hybrid of the two. And as Newcomb says, mission is king there. Our mission statement is building a sanctuary for children and families in North America. And what we mean by that is, is it is faith-based, it is values-based, it's explicitly those things. And we have a creed at the school, like the, the PRISM creed, about what, a, uh, what our goals are for who PRISM students will become. That mission, because we're, we're wanting to create like a safe space for students to, to think about things, to analyze things, that means that students will have to engage in certain activities. We have a very challenging curriculum. You know, one of the concerns that some critics of the act have had is that school choice presents as students can choose where they want to attend school with this voucher money. But, you know, one of the elements of being an independent school, a private school, is that at the end of the day, the, the school has the choice of who does and doesn't attend this school. What would you say to folks who may have concerns with that sort of power dynamic? No, I think that's a legitimate concern. Jessica Fitzpatrick. The choice goes both ways for us here, and that is different than at a public school. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that criticism. Misty Newcomb points out that in some capacities, a version of school choice is happening for more wealthy families already. If you go to certain parts of this county, if you go to certain parts of, um, you know, Pulaski County, where you already have a lot of public schools because of the size, there are certainly students who are, and I don't want to name school names, but I can guarantee you, having been one of those parents myself, there are certainly people who are in a school system that they would, and they would prefer to go to another school system, and they don't have that choice, even in the public school system. So school choice actually already exists. Right now, it is in the form of zoned housing and residential housing communities, and families are able to purchase houses in communities where really strong schools are. And so that sort of thing that I think you're talking about, it's happening, and it's happening in our public school system. At least this provides a pathway for other kids to, to, to get out of that. Another concern raised around the voucher program is that parents who wish to take their kid out of a public school and put them into a private school still may not be able to afford a private school option with the vouchers. This feels especially resonant with many of the students who qualify for year one access, like those who are homeless or those who have disabilities. Both Fitzpatrick and Newcomb point out that the voucher will not cover the full cost of tuition at their schools, but payment plans and scholarships are available. In year three, which will be the 2025-26 school year, any and all Arkansas students will be eligible to access these vouchers. Do you imagine in year three that basically every student who is applying here is using that voucher program? I think, yeah. Missy Newcomb. I think every student who is either already enrolled here or is applying here would be kind of crazy not to take that option. That's my general thought, is that yes, I think families are going to want to use this because it is a tremendous help, and I think there will be more families who elect to go to private school because they have access to this. By year three, we should start seeing some changes in Arkansas's education. Either the public schools will be doing things to, you know, essentially market to their families and say, hey, stick with us. We've got all these programs. And the truth be told, they're going to have teachers who are getting paid, you know, 
in most of the state much higher than most of the private schools will be available able to pay, they are going to have bigger sports programs. Those things take years to build. So those things are all going to still be there. And they would have had a running start on that. And they've got three years to, you know, do whatever they need to do to make their programs look more marketable. Fitzpatrick is wary of the idea that public schools need to be marketable. We're way out there in our in how we do what we do, but there's a lot of aspects of what we do that can get integrated into public schools. You know, and I we do try to offer programs and support for teachers too, so that we can do trainings here of how to do outdoor curriculum or how to do project based learning. I'm really worried about the language floating around. I don't like the name educational freedom accounts. The school choice argument when they make that, I don't I don't think it's helpful and I don't think it builds what I would, would like it to build, you know. I am, you know, honestly nervous about taking the money. I not say I have to, I am because I know so many of my families need it. But I politically it's it's charged, right? And I, I worry about the, the over the last five years, sort of that political reaction to things that we do has amplified. And so I really don't like that. <laughs> you know, I mean obviously. The Learns Act is currently scheduled to go into effect on August 1st. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Speaking of the Learns Act, there's a group who is looking to repeal this law and bring it to the voters on a future ballot here in Arkansas. I'm joined by Daniel Carruth, Ozarks at Large reporter, to talk more about this. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Matthew. How's it going? Good. Um... So Friday, we heard from the folks at Citizens for Arkansas Public Education and Students, or CAPES, that they were closing in on the deadline to collect the required amount of signatures. Uh, they spent a lot of time this weekend collecting some of those signatures. Where are we at with it at this moment? Yeah, so CAPES uh, and Steve Grapp, executive director for the group, they held a press conference today. We still have petitions coming in from northwest Arkansas and Texarkana and Washita County that we knew were coming. He said they're at 49,000 or just over that with signatures, uh, but they're still needing about 4,000, maybe more, to get to that just under 55,000 mark. Yeah. So what happens if they don't get enough signatures? So if they don't get enough signatures, uh, the group, well, Grapp has said he doesn't want to say exactly what they are going to do. They have until 5 p.m. today to get those signatures. But he has sort of laid this out that they may look for some legal avenues. But I will say this, the Constitution is very clear when it says that we get 90 days to get these signatures. And the government came in with an illegal emergency clause that Judge Wright has already ruled was illegal and paused us for half of that time. So our constitutional rights in the state of Arkansas were taken away, and we believe we still have the right to gather those signatures for 90 days. So that might help you a little bit. So what happens if they do get enough signatures? So if they do have enough signatures, they'll turn that into the Secretary of State's office at the end of today. They'll have the same amount of time to verify those, and then it may go to a vote in uh, November of 2024, and then voters get to decide. And so in the meantime, between, let's say if it does, if, if they do get the signatures, it does end up on the ballot... What happens to the LEARNS Act in between now and November of 2024? Yeah, so the LEARNS Act, it'll still go into effect. You know, tomorrow is the day when it begins. And regardless of these signatures, 
uh, it seems like it will still go into effect for this first year. Yeah. We'll keep you updated later this week when we know more from CAPES and the amount of signatures they've got, the voter referendum. There's a lot going on there. Daniel Carruth, thank you so much for reporting on this. Thanks, Matthew. In just a few minutes, the challenge of being the first press secretary for an internationally famous U.S. senator. It, it was nonstop. I mean, he was it's not just the American press, but the foreign press, the Japanese, especially the British, the French, uh, always you know, wanted to, to interview Fulbright. We remember Hoyt Purvis with the help of Prior Center Archives. That's in just a few minutes on today's show. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. A federal judge is temporarily blocking parts of a new law that could require moving or removing certain books in public and school libraries. U.S. District Court Judge Timothy Brooks has granted a preliminary injunction against Sections 1 and 5 of Act 372, saying the sections likely violate the First Amendment. Section 1 deals with penalties if certain books are made available to minors. Section 5 outlines procedures for requesting books to to be removed or relocated. The suit challenging the law was brought by several entities, including the Fayetteville Public Library, the Eureka Springs Carnegie Library, and the Central Arkansas Library System. A just-released New York Times Siena poll placed former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson near the bottom of choices among Republicans likely to participate in the party's presidential primaries. Hutchinson's support is listed at below 1%. Former President Trump leads the poll as the top choice at 54% of responders, with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis second at 17%. Early voting begins in the Arkansas River Valley tomorrow for voters in Sebastian County and Alma. Both ballot matters would extend existing sales taxes if approved. Sebastian County voters are deciding if a countywide 1% sales tax first approved in 1994 will remain for another 10 years. If rejected, the tax will sunset next summer. Alma voters are determining if a 1% sales tax first approved in 2014 will stay on the books. It's scheduled to end this fall. Early voting tomorrow begins at 9 and continues through Friday and is available again a week from today. Election Day is a week from tomorrow when polls will be open from 7.30 to 7.30. The National Weather Service is, again, issuing heat advisories for the region today. Highs this afternoon expected to reach between 96 and 100 with heat index readings near 110 in the Arkansas River Valley and around 105 in northwest Arkansas. The heat advisory is in effect until 9 tonight. Temperatures tomorrow expected to be even hotter. Gas prices in Arkansas are about 20 cents a gallon more expensive than this time last week. The website GasBuddy reports the average price of gas in the state is now $3.39. That's 19.9 cents higher than last week and more than 31 cents higher than this time last month. The average gallon of gas is still about 37 cents cheaper than a year ago. And the Northwest Arkansas Naturals are off today after a six-game series against the Arkansas Travelers last week. Yesterday, the Nats lost 15 to nothing to fall to a game out of first place. Starting tomorrow, Naturals in, are in Wichita for the rest of the week. The next game at Arvest Ballpark in Springdale, one week from tomorrow night. From my experience, 
working with Fulbright, working with Robert Byrd. Uh, I could not have been treated better by either of those uh, great senators, both of whom gave me all kinds of opportunity and, and responsibility. Um, you know, I was just incredibly fortunate in that regard to, to be able to, to have that kind of relationship with, with both of them. I'm very familiar with the voice we just heard. We'll tell you who it is. But first, let me welcome back someone I'm very familiar with, Randy Dixon. Hey, it's great to be back. We've been off for a little bit. Yes, great to have you back. And we're going to keep going with some prior center profiles. Absolutely. And this is a very special one this week. A uh, good, good friend of ours and colleague here at the university uh, passed away in May, at the end of May of this year, uh, at the age of 83, it was Hoyt Purvis. Hoyt was, well, we're going to get into this, but he was an educator, he was uh, an author, he was, well, he was everything. He, yeah, he knew politics, sports, um, movies, entertainment, yeah. well, rock I and just, roll. I got on Amazon and just went to the book section and Googled his name or searched his name, and 10 books came up yeah. just right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and it was varied. It was from, you know, Razorback Sports to political science. It just ran the gamut. Yeah, yeah. Because he's he did, pretty much did everything. He, was he had quite a life. A polymath. He was interested in everything. Mm-hmm. Born in Jonesboro, mm -hmm. uh, grew up um, there, and he found an early interest in journalism. Um, in 2016, the Pryor Center, uh, Scott Lunsford did an interview, actually over two days, uh, with Hoyt. And he talked about his early days. He was working for the Jonesboro Sun, the newspaper, when he was still in high school. I loved uh, working at the newspaper, and uh, that that experience that I got while I was still in high school, I mean, uh, that really, in many ways, was extremely important in kind of giving me a running start uh, toward uh, toward my career. And, you know, when you're in a city like Jonesboro, a smaller town, or Fayetteville, wherever, at the time, uh, I mean, there was... For example, Ronald Reagan came once to speak at the GE banquet, and I, uh, General Electric had a, a, a plant in Jonesboro, and so I went uh, along to cover that. That was when Reagan was still doing, you know, a TV guy. Right. And uh, and then I remember uh, importantly one time when uh, J. William Fulbright was speaking at Arkansas State, and I went along uh, on that. Uh, and after it was over, I, I, I talked to Senator Fulbright a little bit, and I told him that I wanted to work for him. And like, like the way he kind of looked at me, like, oh, "What are you talking about, kid?" You know. But, but uh, I, that was that was a, 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 an important moment in my career because uh, I knew uh, that I wanted, you know, that I really uh, had great admiration for Senator Fulbright and the things he was involved in, and I and I really did want to work sure. for him, and of course, eventually that, that happened. What I love hearing in that um, clip is how much doing something you love in high school pays off later in life. I was able to do that. I think maybe you were able to do that. Absolutely. I and was 19 when I started in television while I was in school, and yeah. you did the same thing. I was 16, and I look wow. back, and that was, you know, because you were in a smaller town, like he said, you just got this... Um, 
this access, this, and I hope that still exists for young people who are whatever they're interested in. Right. And what was great about that story is that he runs into Fulbright right. as a kid and tells right. him, well, I want to work for you. Yeah. And lo and behold, that happens. Now, first, he, uh, he left Jonesboro, went to UT in Austin, got his undergraduate degree, and then got a master's degree in journalism. He worked for a while as a reporter at the Houston Chronicle paper, and then uh, he just started working hard on Fulbright's office, and um, especially Lee Williams, mm-hmm. um, his, his right-hand man, and um, he ended up getting a job that was being created uh, for him. Keep in mind, this is, you know, this is the early 60s uh, or the mid-60s. Right. And, uh, well, he became his press secretary. Fulbright had never had a press secretary, interestingly enough. And I think it was in part because he didn't think he needed a press secretary. Uh, you know, Fulbright, after all, had grown up in a newspaper family. He knew, and, and, and he had... Very good. I mean, he knew all the, the, the main journalists and more. I mean, he'd been on the, all the TV shows. He, you know, he, James Reston, Walter Lippmann. I mean, these were his friends. These were close friends, which was sort of, in a way, uh, a little challenging for a 27-year-old guy to come, come into the middle of that and try and saying to the guy from the New York Times, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, you're going to have to wait your turn <laughs> to talk to Fulbright. But it, it was nonstop. I mean, he was... It's not just the American press, but the foreign press, the Japanese, especially the British, the French, uh, always you know wanted to, to interview Fulbright, mm-hmm. uh, and so. He, but he never had a press secretary before then, and I think the the virtue, perhaps, if I had one, was the fact that I knew something about Arkansas and quite a bit about, but I also knew something about foreign relations, and so that was a combination that. Um, that worked, uh, you know, very much in my favor. He, he was talking in one of his interviews about how politicians around 1960 with Kennedy really started uh, not using the media but utilizing the media right. and um, uh, doing commercials and, and interacting. And, and so it probably, um, Fulbright being the old school mm-hmm. guy that he was, um, didn't think he, yeah, needed, I, I know all the print guys right. and, you know, this TV is a, is a whole different, different thing. And, um, well, he talked about how there were discussions about, uh, doing commercials and working with, uh, a, a different medium and, um, Fulbright, old-fashioned, he'd already been in in office for a couple decades, of decades, yeah. yeah. And so um, he he was very particular about how he wanted to come across in any kind of promotion or ad. In the early days, when I was in, working with Senator Fulbright, and I, and I remember we were up in the in his office in in the federal building here in, in or in Little Rock, and. Um, uh, we were talking some about campaigns, and I don't know. I, I think it was maybe just the senator and myself. Maybe somebody else was there, and uh, he said, "Well, I just want to 
want to make sure you understand. I don't want anybody trying to sell me like a bar of soap. I found one of his ads from that 68 campaign, and you tell me if he sounds like a bar of soap. I've worked with six presidents, but this is the first who secretly listed me as his enemy. When I fought him on the war, that made him mad. When I fight him on foreign aid or education health care, that makes him mad. But that's the price you pay for being a senator. It's a senator's duty to speak his piece. I'm afraid of what will happen if our senators do not stand up to our presidents. And with a crucial year ahead, I cannot walk out on Arkansas now. You know, Fulbright at this time, you know, you, you talk about the, the players in D.C. and you're talking, what, Nixon? Mm-hmm. Wilbur Mills mm-hmm. uh, from Arkansas, but right. then Fulbright. Um, so, so he's getting not only national press, but international press. And Hoyt's got his hands full. Plus, you have this '68 election. Fulbright had by that time become strongly identified for his opposition to the war in Vietnam, and there was a lot of controversy. But he was very much in the national and international news. Uh, we had, you know, lots of. Uh, of TV networks and and uh, reporters and columnists and f- from not only the U.S. but from other countries that came, and so I spent a lot of time dealing, you know, with the, with the visiting press as well as the local press. Of course, the local TV stations in in Arkansas and uh, and the newspapers here uh, covered the campaign very uh, extensively. So uh, I was, you know, very busy uh, just uh, dealing with the press and and letting them know where, you know, Fulbright was going to be at certain times. Um, And uh, actually, uh, the campaign went uh, extremely well, uh, and and, uh, Fulbright won the primary without uh, even uh, coming close to being uh, into a runoff. Uh, and then went on in the in the fall. Uh, Charles Bernard from Earl uh, was the Republican candidate, and uh, you know he uh, ran a, a, a serious campaign. I mean, uh, there had been times in the past when the Republican opponent was you know Sucking not on the ballot. right, but but Bernard uh, ran a, a full scale campaign and and uh, TV advertising etc. But uh, once again, Fulbright uh, won that campaign pretty easily. All right, so that's Hoyt Purvis, who is the subject of our prior center profile this week. Hoyt passed away in May. That's talking about the 68 election. Which he said went very well. It was no big deal. As Fulbright had really not had any problems, any strong opposition uh, his entire career, except 74. And this is what happened. One of the hottest, most far-reaching primaries in the United States will take place next Tuesday. J. William Fulbright, the Democratic Senator of Arkansas for the past 30 years, will be challenged for his Senate seat by Dale Bumpers, now serving his second term as the Democratic Governor of Arkansas, here in their first television interview appearance together. unknown lawyer from Charleston, Dale Bumpers, came in and, uh, well, Hoyt, in this interview with the Prior Center, uh, recalls what he heard and knew about that 74 campaign. Uh, it's important to understand what what the polls said, at least the polls that I knew about, and I don't know that there were any other polls. And basically what they said is that any possible candidate 
who was going to run uh, against Fulbright would probably lose, except for one Dale Bumpers, who would beat him easily. Bumpers was, I mean, you know, we were, uh, there was it wasn't nothing even remotely close about it. So, um, Fulbright's out. Yeah, which means Purvis is out. Because if, if your boss loses. Right. So he's out of D.C. again. He goes back to Austin, and he's uh, doing some work there at the University of Texas, but he gets a phone call from Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia. Byrd calls, and he says, um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm— the majority leader now, and and uh, uh, the one thing that I really want to do is to be able to focus on foreign policy and defense policy. And um, uh, your name has come up as someone who might uh, be uh, interested in, in working with me on that. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm really serious about this. I really want to play a, a role, and I want somebody who can help me uh, uh, do that. And uh, so I said, well, you know, that certainly sounds interesting, Senator. And he said, well, uh, could you uh, come come meet with me tomorrow? Because <laughs> I'm in Austin. <laughs> so I said, oh, sure, yeah, I'll be there. Maybe afternoon by the time I can get there, but I'll be there. So sure enough, I got um, got back to Washington. I'd only been back like two days, and, you know, and, and went in to meet with Byrd and, of course, the majority leader's office and, so we talked for a while, and um, it, it was, you know, I, I was very impressed with what he was proposing to do, the things he was interested in, uh, and um, probably we had no more than a mm, 20 or 30-minute conversation, and he said, well, um, if, if, you, if you're interested, I'd like, I'd like to, for you to, to take the job. He does his four years with Bird, travels the world, um, he comes back to Texas for a while, but then in 1982, mm-hmm. this is where his significance to us really picks up, right. is when he's recruited by the University of Arkansas. So at the same time, he's kind of recruited by the local media, mm-hmm. and he's you know called upon. And when I was working in TV, it was the same thing. I was on the assignment desk, and I had a list— of experts, you know, and they came from up here. They came from University of Arkansas, Little Rock and Hendrix and UCA, but they were all listed in whatever their uh, field of expertise was. And he was in several. Yes. Um, You know, journalism, politics, even foreign relations. So I found this in the archives uh, KTV used to do a weekly public affairs program called News Scene Reports, and he was one of several panelists talking about the 82 election. Some of Reagan's policies, however, I think are a factor, and I suspect a factor in all the races. Certainly, from my observation, they're a factor here uh, in this district. This next clip I want to run is from 1991, and it's significant because... This is where he made an appearance on AETN, or Arkansas PBS as it's known now. Right. But they had put together—this was right after the uh, 
Arkansas Democrat closed down the Gazette right. and had bought them from Gannett Corporation. And so there was a panel put together by AETN, and they were questioning uh, Hussman and the future of the Democrat Gazette. Clearly, in, in Arkansas with the Gazette, Gannett was arrogant and inept and made some incredible blunders and did not understand the, the newspaper that it was running. But outside Arkansas, Gannett has a relatively uh, successful record. Looking at the broader trends in the newspaper industry and the fact that um, <clears throat> there are lots of changes uh, underway in terms of the way people uh, get information or are likely to get it in the future, what do you, how do you see the, the Democrat Gazette fitting into that? We just basically do not agree with the Gannett Company's approach to news and that uh, newspapers, because of television and because of changing lifestyles, you ought to have shorter, lighter uh, type fare. I do not think that. I don't think that's the answer. In fact, I think newspapers are undergoing a change. But if there's any any uh, reason for newspapers to continue as a successful businesses. We need to realize what our niche is, and our niche is to have the most complete, comprehensive, in-depth report uh, available for readers. And Hoyt was associated with uh, AETN for a long time. Well, I think they were so impressed with this that they picked him up, and Steve Barnes uh, really wanted him on his Arkansas Week show. He got to be really good friends with, with Steve, Steve and Hoyt. Uh, over the years, got to be very good friends and still were to this day. Uh, but I talked to Steve last week uh, about Hoyt and his involvement on that show. It was when he returned to the university from Washington that our relationship really flowered into more personal than professional, although it was always a, a healthy mix of both. Hoyt was just a, a Catholic intellect, Catholic with a small C. He was interested in everything, just about. He was a sports nut, a sports fanatic, particularly baseball, which marked him as a true intellectual. And, of course, foreign affairs, American journalism, mass media. Uh, he was just a fantastic individual and one of the shrewdest, sharpest political minds I've encountered. It was a pleasure, always to have him on Arkansas Week because he brought so much to the program. There was his experience in Washington. There was his experience as a working journalist. Uh, he knew both worlds. He had a foot in both worlds. It made him and his contributions absolutely invaluable. So let's talk about his time here. At the university? Yes. Yeah. Um, so you had him for a couple of classes? I did. And um, one was, I don't know, something like foreign relations reporting. I mean, it wasn't a journalism class per se. It was more right. like a poli-sci, political uh -huh. science. And then I had him for a journalism class well, as well. That's, it, it is interesting, the, the combinations uh, of, of uh, knowledge mm -hmm. uh, that, that he brought to the table that could all yeah. fit together in, in some of these probably unique classes that only he could right. teach. Right, right. But um, he also, not only did he teach journalism and political science, he was director and professor of the Fulbright Institute of International Relations. Right. He obviously worked closely with Larry Foley. And 
uh, he was already here when Larry started. Uh, but I talked to Larry uh, about working with Hoyt. I've never known anybody who enjoyed, and I mean loved, working like Hoyt. He was the Energizer Bunny. You could not outwork him. A student couldn't keep ahead of him. Faculty members, he left us in, in his dust. He was just always working, and he was always carrying around boxes of material to grade. And he, he just loved teaching, and I think he just loved the mechanics of the whole thing. I talked to, to Larry about, you know, the loss personally and professionally. It was a great loss when he retired, and it's a great loss to Arkansas. But it's that old line about, you know, don't be sad because it's over. Be happy because it's happened. Uh, those of us who were uh, blessed to be in Hoyt Purvis's uh, orbit are, are much better off for it. So Steve is actually going to be speaking uh, at a memorial service, which is this Friday mm-hmm. for Hoyt. It'll be at Giffel's Auditorium at 5 o'clock on campus. It's open to the public, and uh, it should be uh, a, a moving tribute. Mm-hmm. Um, there are several other speakers, but um, I do know that Steve will be there. Point was a man of innumerable accomplishments, and he wore absolutely positively none of them on his sleeve. If you sat next to him at a baseball game without introduction or took a seat next to him on an airplane or a city bus, you would never have guessed the life he had led the books he had written, uh, the policies he helped shape. Uh, He was just a regular guy uh, on whom a good suit would have been wasted. One of the great things about Hoyt Purvis is that if you were at a function or you just ran into him, you you would not be at a loss to talk to him about something. Maybe you weren't interested in politics. Maybe you weren't interested in international affairs. Maybe you weren't in interested in baseball or boxing or horse racing or movies. (laughs) But there would be something that he could talk to you and teach you about. No, that's true. Yeah. Easily. And was just sort of a matter of fact. He was a very low-key person. Yes. But loved telling a story. Yes. And And very good at it. And very good at it. Yeah. Great to have you back. It's wonderful to be back. All right. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. You can see the long-form interview with Hoyt there. You can find all sorts of things, plus that new General Wesley Clark uh, that's interview true. that's up as well. Right, and you can hear any of our that's previous right. programs by going to the KETV section and Ozarks at Large. There's a special little area over there on the website. We're very special, we are. <laughs> Thank you, Randy. <laughs> hey, good to see you. See you next week. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, a partnership between Northwest Arkansas Food Bank and restaurants in the Bentonville Square look to raise money to fight food insecurity in our region.
you know, when you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you're not going to eat a regular meal. You're going to, uh, you can think through, okay, I'm going to take a bite here because I also have to maybe share it with my siblings. Or a parent may go hungry because they want to feed their children, so they're not necessarily eating. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith talks to Kristen Nicholson about food insecurity and the upcoming two-day fundraiser with businesses on the Bentonville Square. That conversation and much more tomorrow at noon at 7 p.m. on KUAF Public Radio. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Songs. I feel so happy, I want to shout. Well, tell me, Bing, tell me what it's all about. I found my one idea, and this time I'm sure it's real. Rhythm and Blues pioneer Louis Jordan of Brinkley, born July 8, 1908, is considered by many to be the father of rhythm and blues and the grandfather of rock and roll. His incredible record sales included more than 50 top 10 hits through the 1940s and 1950s. But had he never sold a record, Jordan's musical influence would be enough. The Monroe County native is the direct musical route from which sprang Chuck Berry, James Brown, B.B. King, Ray Charles, Freddie King, Dizzy Gillespie, and many more. Louis Jordan remains quite influential long after his 1975 death, if often forgotten by the general public. One wrinkle in many aspects of Jordan's career is as many vocal duets with other artists. We heard a chick just the other day Cooling out her boyfriend in every way Louis Jordan's most prolific duet partner by far was Ella Fitzgerald. The two first began to work together when they performed in the Chick Webb Orchestra in the mid-1930s. They became stars individually in the 1940s, so recording together again must have seemed a natural. Their songs like Stone Cold Dead in the Market hit number one for weeks at a time. Louis Jordan additionally recorded with more unlikely partners. That included his label mate Bing Crosby. Crosby and Jordan were the two top-selling artists on Decca Records at the time, so perhaps the idea wasn't so unlikely. In July 1944, the pair recorded a pair of fluff songs called Yip Yip Yahooty, heard at the beginning of the program, and heard here, Your Socks Don't Match. Also recorded by the pair, but unreleased, was a version of Jordan's hit, Is You Is or Is You Ain't My Baby, and Cole Porter's Don't Fence Me In. Crosby would later record both songs again and have solo hits with them. The shoes you wear reveal your holes, one red and one bright blue. They're total strangers, and I suppose you should introduce those two. Early in his career, Louis Jordan recorded with the other Louis, Louis Armstrong, as a sideman when Jordan was in the Charlie Gaines Band. Armstrong had already established himself as a name performer even by that time. In August 1950, Jordan and Armstrong finally recorded together again, but by this time, Jordan was an equal. Heard here, his life is so peculiar. Heard next is a song often associated with Louis Armstrong, if not always as a duet number, called I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, You Rascal You. Backing Jordan and Armstrong is Jordan's band, the Timpani Five, which included Bill Jennings on guitar, Aaron Eisenhall on trumpet, and Bill Doggett on piano. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. You know you've done me wrong You stole my wife and gone I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you Talk about him, Jordan, talk about him I'm gonna keep 
Whether as a front man, side man, or duet partner, or performing with the greats or anonymous side men, Louis Jordan's talent and personality nearly always shone through. Louis Jordan died February 4, 1975, with his contributions to American popular song still being tallied. Here in its entirety is Louis Jordan of Brinkley with his 1950 duet with the other Louis, Louis Armstrong, with Life is So Peculiar. Life is so peculiar. You get so wet in the rain. You know it too. Mm-hmm. You get so warm in the sunshine. Get my suntan. It doesn't pay to complain. I never complain. When I get up each morning, there's nothing to breathe but air. Yeah, and when I look in the mirror, there's nothing to comb but hair. And when I sit down to breakfast, there's nothing to eat but food. Life is so peculiar, but you can't stay home and root. Oh, life! Tell them about it, Pops. It's so peculiar. The desert's only got sand, And that's grand. The ocean's only got water. And you can't break it all up. You never know where you stand. When I go out to dinner, there's nothing to wear but clothes. And whenever I get sleepy, there's nothing to do but doze. And whenever I get thirsty, there's nothing to do but drink. Life is so peculiar that it makes you stop and think. Yes, life. Baba Duebua. It's so peculiar. Sure is. A fork belongs with a knife. It sure does. Corned beef is lost without cabbage. I love cabbage. Husband should have a wife. Yes, life is so peculiar, but as everybody says, that's life. Brinkley in Monroe County with his duet with Louis Armstrong, Life is So Peculiar, from 1950. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. 
Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock, where they still play it loud. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bella Vista, and Mount Nebo. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Randy Dixon and Stephen Cook. Our underwriting director at KUAF is Ryan Versi. Today's show produced in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Speaking of Louis Jordan, yes, as we were just a minute ago, last night I uh, watched Beanie Bubble, yeah. the, the movie that is inspired, they say at the very beginning, that they make some stuff up, uh-huh. but inspired about the phenomenon that was Beanie Babies. This is on Apple TV Plus? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, Laura and I were watching it last night. Elizabeth Banks plays a character who is influential in the development of Beanie Babies, and her character says at one point, uh, that she's from Arkansas. Okay. And they make reference to that a couple times. They're, they name drop the, uh, Sam Walton. Uh-huh. It's taking place when the Clintons are going to the White House. Right. Uh, so they are name dropped. And, in fact, at one point, Zach Galifianakis, who who plays the man who Ty, yeah. you know, who, who creates the Beanie Babies, he says, I can't believe you're from Arkansas. I don't know the Clintons. And then at one point, the music, because it's taking place in the late 80s to the mid-90s, mm-hmm. music is of that era, whether it's original music or hits from the time. And then inexplicably, one time at a Christmas party, they start playing Louis Jordan. It's huh. the only song that doesn't fit the 80s or 90s. Yeah. But of course, Louis Jordan from Arkansas. Right. And Anyway, the Elizabeth Banks character is an amalgam, uh-huh. and I tried to find out if the woman she was based on, Patricia Roach, is from Arkansas. But you can't find out. She doesn't. Have, she's she's wow. one of the richest female executives in the UK now. You can't find out if she was from Arkansas. No Wikipedia entry. That's anything. fascinating. But they do talk a little bit about Arkansas. Yeah, I feel like uh, as as someone who was a child during the Beanie Babies rage, uh, I think it was like the precursor to like NFTs. Of like, here is this. They make that point. Here is this thing that is going to be incredibly valuable. Surely to God, this will catch on, and the floor drops out of it. And, and they go they're, into that. They're, it's basically worthless. Fun watch. All right, more tomorrow. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of amenities and living options from apartments to village homes, plus on-site fitness facilities. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. KUAF is partnering with local McDonald's owner-operators to bring you the KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series, including three tiny desk-styled concerts that will take place at different McDonald's locations across northwest Arkansas, the River Valley, and the Green Country. These three concerts lead up to the Lunch All Day Mini Festival in September. Performances include Steph Simon of Fire in Little Africa, country singer Joe West, and artist-designer Tylo May. KUAF.com backslash summer concerts for more information.